so it's this idea that nobody cared about my my guilty clients. Right. Nobody ever asked about my guilty clients. So it's kind of the idea that if someone isn't innocent, then they do, do deserve to be on death row, actually. Yes, that's the implication. I think that when you are obsessed with innocence, it it upholds this idea that some people are deserving of, of brutality in our criminal justice system, which I think is, is not correct. Salams, peace and blessings. You're listening to Breaking Binaries with me, your host, Sahima Mansal Khan, known online as the Brown Hijabi. As a society, we're obsessed with explaining our world through the use of straightforward opposing categories, so good or bad, moderate or radical, pretty or ugly, victim or villain. The list goes on. All these sets of binaries, though, tend to be quite superficial and they hide the real complexities, politics and nuances of how we've been encouraged to think. So every episode, I'll be sitting down with a different friend to break down, break apart and really interrogate a different binary and see how doing so helps us think more critically and widely about ourselves, our world and therefore how we transform it. This episode, I'm joined by my friend Daria Reven. She's someone who's pushed me to think so much more critically about the world. She's from Colorado and has a background working in mitigation with clients on death row in the United States. She's just become a PhD candidate at New York University, which is super exciting, researching into the construction and entwinement of innocence and whiteness. We had an amazing conversation and I really hope you enjoy listening. This week, I am joined in the studio on our very first venture to break a binary. And the one that we're going to start with is quite big. Um, we spent a lot of time talking about this in the past. So this is the binary of the seemingly oppositional ideas of innocence and guilt. I'm here in the studio with Daria Reven, who is one of my longtime good friends. And you're from Colorado in the US, correct? That is correct. <laughs> um, and you, it's, so you can tell us a little bit about this, but I get the impression that your obsession with the idea of innocence uh, came from working on death row, right? So maybe you can tell us a bit about that and kind of how this led to your interest in, in these categories of innocence and guilt. Sure. Um, so I've been a criminal defense investigator for about seven or eight years now. Um, and some of that time has been spent working on death penalty cases, as you mentioned, some of it not. Um, but in probably most recently in the, over the last few years, I've been working as a mitigation specialist on death penalty cases in Louisiana and Mississippi. So can you tell South. us a bit about what mitigation is? What does that mean? Yes. Um, so I worked on primarily appeals cases, which means that my, my clients were already sentenced to death. So after that point, it's the mitigation specialist's job to collect any evidence, and I really stress any evidence, that would allow for a judge or a prosecutor or jury in some cases to find your client to be human enough uh, that they would grant them the reprieve of being in prison for the rest of their lives rather than being executed by the state. So you're trying to get your client's life in prison rather than death? On death in some right? cases, the removal from prison altogether, um, but that's pretty unusual mm. for the most so part. So the best case scenario yeah. generally is life in prison rather than death yes. on death row. That is the, the minimum reprieve that we're hoping for, yeah. Okay. And so I remember that something that you used to say to me, um, which threw me when I met you quite early on, which was that you get annoyed when people ask you, um, you know, are, but are any of your clients ever actually innocent? Because I think that's that and that's such a thing, I think, in pop culture and wider culture to this kind of um, intrigue around like, but could someone possibly be on death row who doesn't deserve to be there because they're mistakenly there? And it, it fascinated me that you said that was annoying because I, I just thought that was such a natural question for people to ask. And I wonder maybe if you can explain to start unpacking this idea why that was why, why that's annoying. 
Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I think initially when I started, I didn't find it annoying. It was something that the consistent sort of the, the, once I started getting that question all the time, it mm. really started turning into a different thing for me. So I think the reason that I found it so frustrating is not because there aren't innocent people on death row, because certainly there are and mistakes do happen. I think anyone who works in the criminal justice system, especially in the U.S., can attest to the fact that mistakes happen all the time and that innocent people often are subjected to horrible brutality. But the fixation with innocence is that it implies that the sort of the idea is sacred and there's this moral righteousness and it essentially allows us to to suggest that that certain people are deserving of brutality and certain mm. people aren't that's and that's so it's this idea that nobody cared about my my guilty clients right. nobody ever asked about my guilty clients so it's kind of the idea that if someone isn't innocent then they do do deserve to be on death row actually yes that's the implication i think that when you are obsessed with innocence it it upholds this idea that some people are deserving of of brutality in our criminal justice system, which I think is uh, mm. is not correct. <laughs> so I think that's interesting because you're bringing into this the idea that actually somebody who has committed a crime, what is defined as a crime in society, um, doesn't necessarily deserve to go through the system that they then endure for being classified as criminals. Is this what you're suggesting? That is what I'm suggesting. And I think that's a, that's a huge that is in, in many ways connected to what mitigation is, which is that mitigation is essentially providing context for how violence occurs. Right. So it's it, you're trying to describe familial patterns and societal patterns, structural patterns, patterns that have to do with state violence, patterns that have to do with family violence for how a crime occurs and providing context for that. Okay, so this is really interesting because I, I feel like a lot of times we talk about people who perpetrate violence and we don't give them context. And in the UK, I can think, of, you know, particularly with knife crime in London, this is a big thing that is talked about. And people will kind of talk about, um, you know, it becomes a very racialized discourse where it's like black boys listen to drill music and then stab people. And uh, the only thing that's talked about is the individual, particularly their race, particularly these kinds of things. And I guess, um, I guess what you're saying with context is that you're not trying to necessarily justify or explain the violence itself, but maybe trying to put that person into a wider context. Do you think you could give some examples of like what, not like specific examples, but like examples of what kinds of context you're talking mm -hmm. about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I should say here too that my methodology for mitigation is different than um, other mitigation specialists in certain ways. So the typical mitigation approach is really approaching your client from an individual and a familial context. So in any case, with a, with a person on death row, the ideal best practice is to go back three generations in your client's life. Oh, wow. So any mitigation specialist is looking at their parents, their grandparents, and sort of the familial patterns having to do with mental illness, right. trauma, all those kind of things. So I certainly cover that stuff. But I think what I'm also interested in revealing is is revealing patterns of state violence that um, that act on my client's lives. So what kind of thing so, would state violence sure. be? Sure, so in Louisiana, for example, it's typical that I would be looking at slave registers for my client's relatives. Wow. And when you're looking at slave registers, then that naturally leads up to sharecropping. That naturally leads up to all these other historical factors that implicate black people in the South in particular as a unique so, sort of subset. So, so say you have a client on death row who is a black man and you're then going back into his family history. And what is the purpose of you trying to highlight that, I don't know, four generations ago, somebody was enslaved in his ancestry? Mm -hmm. um, I think it's, it's, 
I think there's a tendency to erase state violence and state complicity and in how individual acts of crime mm. and, and violence occur. And so my interest, and again, this is this is my and I th- and I and others I've worked with as well, approach to talk about the larger state-based historical context for how I think I draw a very a, re- a real connection and a real link between state violence and individual violence. Mm-hmm. See, this is really interesting because I think I often th- talk about this in the context of um, like terrorism and the way that we talk about terrorism because we, it sounds like we're talking about similar things here because I, I kind of think if you want to talk about individuals who commit acts of quote unquote terrorism, um, you have to talk about the context they're living in and you have to in the UK you have to talk about prevent and you have to talk about Mm -hmm. surveillance and you have to talk about you know social and economic marginalization of communities and also the way that there's no way to express your grievances and the way that people actually use the language of the war on terror in these acts of of violence that they commit but it's seen as a completely different thing and it's just that individual that is wrong and I, I guess the thing that I always come against when I try and make this argument is well, are you trying to justify or explain that violence? And I mean, what, what in your line of work, how, how do you explain what it is that you're, you're aiming for or trying to do if it's not justifying or explaining? Sure. Um, I think especially, um, and I imagine we'll talk about this later around philosophies of prison, prison abolition. But when you talk about context, I think you're right that people assume that that means that you're talking about a lack of accountability. And I would just say that those things are not at all the same. Justifying is is about imagining what real forgiveness and accountability and transformation could possibly look like. And adding context doesn't erase the harm that's been done at all. It's, it's just a way to assess it that's not overly reductive. And it acknowledges that those who do harm are also subject to harm. Mm-hmm. And that anyone who's a perpetrator or a victim of harm can be the other and that those categories are not static at all. Yeah, so that's so interesting because I think that's very much the whole, you know, like the bully has been bullied kind of very basic rhetoric that you hear sure. at school, um, but then applying that in a big way. And I, this is reminding me of a conversation I was having um, a couple of uh, weeks ago with some like university students and they were saying, okay, so up to a point they understood this argument about actually we should be looking for accountability and actually maybe just putting someone on death row and killing them isn't really gonna resolve the larger problems. And I think for me, like, again, going back to terrorism, by just kind of condemning these people or deporting them or detaining them, you're not actually gonna counter terrorism. You're not actually gonna stop the acts of violence. You're not actually gonna heal society. Um, and so I, I guess what what I find interesting is is that people... I wonder if we often come from quite like a vindictive place with this, that we just want to like do away with that person and, and not deal with the larger problem. And actually, I think Angela Davis says that, um, you know, prisons deal with, they, they disappear individuals, not problems or something mm-hmm. like that. <laughs> really misquoted her. But um, I think that it, it sounds like from the work that you're doing that, that actually the end goal isn't just getting people to have life in prison, rather than death on death row, but maybe something bigger? Yes. Um, I think this is where, for me, there's a real relationship between mitigation and abolition work. And I think that that's, I think for a lot of folks who are lawyers and practitioners in this work, the real, the goal is really just individual remedies for individual clients. And I don't know if that connection is always made. I certainly, certainly make that connection. Mm. And, I, and I know a lot of other people who do as well. So folks, prison abolitionists like Mariam, uh, Kaba, who's uh, an amazing prison abolitionist, she talks a lot about the idea that 
if violence has emerged because of poverty and desperation, then the goal is to create survivable conditions for mm. folks. And if, if violence originated because of misogyny or sexism, then mm. that's, you know, it's really, there's a huge relationship between individual violence and structural mm-hmm. violence. And so, yeah, I think you're absolutely right that those, that while the immediate goal for a case might be a remedy for a case and the removal of, of certain, you know, um, brutal conditions on death rows across America. Mm. The ultimate goal is certainly, certainly to reevaluate the conditions that led to that violence, um, which is obviously a much harder thing to achieve. Right. And so some people would say that actually what you're talking about prison abolition, which is the removal of prisons from society, but also the kind of removal of the way of thinking about people as criminal and some people as more criminal and less criminal. And and I think actually here's, a, here's something that I just want to go into for a second, which is but you know, in the context of I've been talking about terrorism and also knife crime, these are super racialized crimes, right? We associate terrorism with brown and Muslim men. We associate knife crime with black men. We, And in that sense, then those people are seen as criminal before even having done the quote unquote crime. Um, and I don't know, for me, that creates this situation where you actually then have this weird space where um, people people are going about their normal lives just being the race that they are and then Mm -hmm. are assumed to be criminal because of that race and then you know killed in many cases because of that and can you talk about your kind of thoughts regarding like innocence and guilt as categories and race and how that fits in and are you know are people seen as more innocent because of their race yeah that's a huge huge part of this absolutely and actually um a theorist who i really love called lisa marie cacho says exactly what you just said she says criminality is not recognizable without a black body wow and i think and that's she says that in an american context but it certainly applies and and i can only really speak to the american context rather than the british context in Mm -hmm. that particular way but i'm sure there's a lot of overlaps to be Mm -hmm. made there in terms of my research on innocence, something that I uncovered that was really striking in this way was the presumption of innocence is a a legal category that was invented, that was sort of not invented, but was sort of written into law in the 1800s in the US. Um, And around that same time that the presumption of innocence was codified into law, there was another presumption, which was the presumption of slavery. So at the same time that the presumption of innocence was being written for white defendants, there was a similar, a, a sort of similar corollary presumption, which was that any black person was assumed was presumed to be a slave, oh, and you'd have to prove that you weren't a slave in the same way that you'd have to prove that you were, that you weren't guilty, or that you were innocent rather. So you'd have to so. Um, Slaves were required to go to court, and it would essentially be like a blood trial where you'd have to illustrate how. Um, it would, it would, you'd have to illustrate purity of bloodline. So it was, it was meant to associate slavery with blackness. So the presumption of slavery was essentially um, a legal fact, which according to the law at the time can only be repelled by quote, any evidence tending to show that he is free, which at the time meant because it was a presumption of law, the presumption of slavery operated in really similar ways to the presumption of innocence. So essentially one had to disprove the presumption through argument in court. Okay, so I'm a little bit confused. So if, if this was in conflict, so let's like say we're like in court right now. Sure. Um, and say what you're saying is that in the same way that someone would have to prove they are innocent, mm-hmm. they would have to prove they're not a slave. Yeah, so slaves were with, with viable claims, quote unquote, were obligated to sue for their freedom, arguing that they were actually in Native American or white. So why would they be having to prove this? For example, you had proof in your family that you weren't 
that you had some kind of lack of purity of blood or there was some some white blood in you, quote right. unquote, or Native American blood, then you'd have to go to court and you could say, I'm not a slave because I have this sort of lineage in my family. Oh, so it's almost like being a slave is guilt, like itself is guilt and you're trying to yes. disprove that. Exactly. Oh, I see. Yes. Okay, okay, yes. okay. So in the same way that you'd be trying to prove, okay, wow. So actually you're saying that in a sense, the thing that was criminal, you know, if we're talking about guilt and innocence, then guilt was associated with being a slave. And of with course, being who- visibly black. Right, exactly. Yeah. I was going to say, because who's enslaved is... Right. Right. And so you'd have to prove that you were not a slave wow. by by proving in court that you had white blood or Native American blood. So actually very, very early on in the legal system then, this whole... So this is fascinating then, because you're saying that the idea of innocence... Because this was interesting, at the very start when we were talking, um, we were kind of saying that you know, there are some people that maybe are innocent, but, and I guess there's a distinction here to make maybe between innocence in the sense of in the law, there are certain things that are seen as criminal. So if you kill someone, that is a crime. And therefore, if you have not killed someone, you are innocent. But you're kind of saying there's another layer to this, which is that in the way that like historically this structure has been built up of the justice system, we associate racialized and black bodies more with crime and guilt than we do white bodies. Absolutely. And that's literally written into the law. In the U.S. or was for a long time. And I think that that connection and that's the connection that I think is so striking about this is that we have this idea that the law is race neutral. Mm. Right. And that the law sort of is this weird, omnipotent, detached from human kind sort of force. But really, the law is absolutely not race neutral and never has been. Hmm. That's so interesting because. I mean, this seems to me directly linked as well to then the way the police operate, um, because, you know, we know that uh, people of color are much more likely to be stopped and searched, uh, much more likely to be kind of detained without charge for longer and, you know, charged for longer periods, convicted for longer periods. And I want I'm it's just making me wonder, like, whether that's it's, maybe it's a bit of a chicken egg thing, but like whether that's because it's in the, you know, encoded in the legal system that the, it's so easy to then operate in racist logics or whether it's kind of mutually reinforcing. Yeah, I think both. Absolutely. Um, I think that, I mean, the the relationship between police and the law are incredibly entangled. Um, And so I think it absolutely follows logically Mm. that the police would be enforcing those kinds of ideas that are codified into our law. Yeah. And this is also reminding me of, um, so this idea that like people of color in particular are seen as more guilty, seen as more criminal. I remember reading um, Nisha Kapoor. She's written some amazing stuff about kind of how different bodies are dehumanized and she was kind of saying that actually the people who and and I guess maybe this is helpful in a British context the people who were formerly colonized you kind of say that hey these people who have black and brown bodies are you know less civilized more barbaric Um, and you kind of say that it's inherent in who they are it's like an essential part of them is that they are these things and so she says that actually when colonization ends and these people all kind of come you know like like myself you now live here and you're brown in Britain um, what happens is that not you're not any longer seen as the colonized necessarily, but you become the criminalized. And so actually the essential trait that is now seen as within you is that you are a terrorist. At heart, you just have a deeper propensity for violence. At heart, you just are more dangerous. You just are more threatening. And in a way, in the same way that the colonial state could surveil and kind of control those people, now you have this state doing the same thing to the same people, Mm -hmm. but what was colonization is now criminalization, which I thought was such a fascinating argument. That's really interesting. And I think that that is sort of related to another thing that I argued in my research using the same theorist, Lisa Marie Cacho, who I think is incredible, is that I don't think it's as easy or as simple to say that 
that all black people are were considered guilty and all white people were considered innocent. It's really just that when you have that racism necessitates that there's sort of a legal identity that's determined exclusively by the state. Mm. So the state gets to determine the legal identity that it, of whatever is most convenient for its own aims, right? So it's not necessarily that it's always guilty 100% of the time. It's really just, it's a like a sort of depersonalized legal identity that's determined by the state. Um, and it's, she, she refers to it as a legal identity that's defined by fictions of disability, um, which portray people of color as having a legal life that that is essentially completely tied to the state. Okay. I think this the simple way to say it is really just that it's that the that the narrative of the legal identity is determined by the state. Okay. That's really a simple So the state decides who is seen as guilty and innocent. Is that what you're yes, saying? Yes, and that I think what's what's important to note here is that it's not as simple as you know, as there's as that this group of people is always considered guilty and mm. this group of people is always considered innocent. It's really saying that the state gets to determine to its own whims, really, whatever's mm-hmm. most convenient for mm-hmm. its ultimate goal, which mm-hmm. in the case of the U.S. is often resulting in mass swaths of mm. black people being incarcerated, which means that there is a legal identity that's tied to the state's goal of presenting black people as guilty. Right. And actually, also, do you think that this how the, the state decides who is guilty or how you define in that legal definition is also linked to the state gets to define who is human and who's not because i when you you were saying that i'm immediately thinking of um this example of two um people both kind of they got extradition requests from the u.s so that means that the u.s kind of said you need to send this person to be put on charge for a crime in the u.s and they can't be put on trial in the uk they have to be sent straight over so essentially have to be deported um and in the case there was a, a white man and a brown Muslim man and the European Court of Human Rights, both of them appealed to that saying, you know, why should we be deported to be put into essentially 23 hours a day solitary confinement um, for a crime that we've not even been charged for or put on trial for in the UK. And the European Court of Human Rights said that due to, um, so one of the men, Gary McKinnon, because he had Asperger's and um, depression, they said it would be against his human rights, it would violate his human rights for him to be deported. So he wasn't. And the very same day or period of days, um, the other man, Talha Hassan, was extradited or they, they mm-hmm. kind of got permission. Uh, but, and the, here's, you know, the even more kind of brutal part of that is that he also had Asperger's and depression. So it literally is, wow. you know, the same. That's like, it was just that one was seen mm-hmm. as human and one wasn't. But also this is entirely links to guilt and innocence, right? Because it was, a, it was about their criminality and it was about whether they should be put through this justice system to be mm-hmm. put on trial in the US. Mm-hmm. But also within that, should they be put into solitary confinement? Should they be kind of deported and, and lose their kind of citizenship rights? And that was fascinating to me because it really did just seem to come down to these very racialized ways of thinking about who is good and who is bad and who is defendable and who isn't. Um, and I guess like you must see this all the time in the US with like um, particularly mass shootings. Like when white men do this, we always know they are, they are given this context kind of that, that it sounds almost like you you work, you have to work to do for people of color. Um, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think all of that is extremely accurate. And two ones that come to mind for me that I just think just because they refer to innocence so explicitly are. So, for example, Martin Screlly, who was the. Um, he committed fraud and was and basically just he did a bunch of ridiculous things um, in his capacity working in the pharmaceutical industry. And he declared himself to be so innocent is literally mm. what he said. He's like, I'm so innocent of the Ooh. fraud charges brought against me. And then there was this other woman in the U.S. called um, 
Justine Damon, who was a uh, white Australian woman who was shot and killed by police in Minnesota. And her lawyer in a press conference declared her to be the most innocent victim of police brutality. Wow. Um, wow. Which I just think is, I mean, it's, it speaks to exactly what you were just talking yeah. about around um, the extremely, you know, I think innocence is so tied to what we consider to be sacred and familiar to us. And in the U S dominant culture is, is white culture. And so what's familiar and what's human mm. is inextricably linked to yeah. whiteness. Cause actually when you were saying that, I'm just thinking if we also link like ch ch childness, childhood to innocence. And I know this is like a rhetoric that already exists, but like, you know, black children never being given that childhood and always been kind of called and described as adults. And I'm just thinking, actually, that's wild because you would never have a black child who's, you know, brutalized by the police called the most innocent victim of police brutality. And yet you have a white woman being described. And also that's fascinating because it's like there's you've suddenly gone from this binary of guilt and innocence to the scale of innocence. And that's in of itself kind of disrupts that binary and tells you that, hang on, it's not so simple because we are thinking of some people as more or less innocent. And I don't know, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's super interesting. And I think that actually leads to, so innocence in the U.S. especially is really related to this Judeo-Christian idea of what innocence is, um, because the Bible really is the first mention we see of of innocence and of how punishment is doled out against innocent or guilty parties. And that kind of rhetoric is actually exactly what the U.S. Supreme Court uses to describe the presumption of innocence and mm. to talk about and to define innocence later. And for me, I see a real relationship between that sort of argument and then thinking about innocence is also tied to sexuality and to the body, because mm. in the Bible, the first instance of sin is really rooted in the body. That's so and I think we can follow that through line really clearly because especially when you think about the history of lynching in the US, which is that white women's sexuality and protection from these supposedly hypersexualized black male predators mm. is exactly what justified the punishment mm. of those black men. So yeah. So white women are just essentially used as placeholders for innocence. Mm. And um, even in cases so um the loss of sexual innocence, as I said, was used to to validate the brutalism of lynching, even when the supposed crime was not of a sexual nature. Mm, it was yeah, so it was always sort of tied to that. And that's I mean, so in the UK right now, over the last few years, you have this whole rhetoric of uh, grooming gangs. And the association with that is these groups of brown Muslim men who are kind of, you know, uh, grooming and sexually like harming, assaulting, using, exploiting uh, young white girls. And it of course, like what's really difficult here is to, to to nuance this rhetoric because it's like, how do you simultaneously, it's like there's no space in the mainstream to simultaneously um, kind of want the accountability for those people and want like justice for those victims, but also to say, hang on, the, not the only perpetrators of violence um, and sexual violence are men of color and not the only victims of sexual violence are white women. Because I think one of the really harmful things that particularly comes out of this is that the only people deemed sexually innocent are white women and that you actually, and I mean, I think the people that I, I think about most in this situation is like men of color as, as you know, victims of sexual violence, never, there's no space to, to, to be a victim. And that's because there's no space to be innocent, I, I suppose in a way as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Damn. Okay. <laughs> um, there was something that reminded me of, which I've lost. Oh, just going back to what you were saying about, um, like theology and Judeo Christian stuff. Um, that's really interesting because I was thinking, I mean, so one thing is that's interesting, first off, is just that like Islamically, um, 
And it's so interesting because I always think about, I wonder how much like Judeo-Christian tradition has like been read onto the way people think about Islam and stuff as well, because there's a really important theological difference, which is that actually Eve is not the one who commits this quote unquote sin yeah. in the Quran. And actually it's just that Adam and Eve both like kind of make a mistake is the way that it's kind of discussed and immediately they regretful. And then immediately God says, hey, no worries. Here's the prayer for forgiveness. Um, you know, so just pray for forgiveness. But, you know, you are going to lose your status in heaven. You are going to have to go through this whole thing hmm. in earth, um, which is super interesting. But I was thinking the other day about so. I mean, if we think about the criminal justice system more broadly, um, I've been having a lot of conversations about, you know, how do we, how do we transform it? Like, what would a a justice system look like? I guess that is, you know, just <laughs> not like having these deeply flawed characteristics we talked about. Um, and it got me thinking then about like, so Islamically and like theologically, I suppose more generally, if 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 you believe that there is this omnipotent like judge that is the most just the most merciful also because that's really interesting to be most just but also most merciful because mm. mercy is like you even if you did the thing you're not going to be held accountable for it. actually it's just going to be completely wiped away and we're just going to overlook it um and i don't know i was just thinking about this because i was like hang on a second so in this in this justice system as well where god apparently knows every your every intention your every context every single thing you've done I, I think it's, I find it actually really difficult to, I wonder if we've imposed a lot of our ideas about like criminal justice onto the like afterlife, by which I mean mm. that like, how much space is there for punishment in a justice system where God is all knowing, considering every context, every intention of yours. So like mitigation to the max, right? Like, yeah. this is the, like the mitigation of, of all mitigations, plus the most merciful. Um, I'm just like, wow, that's wild. Have we... Have we made hell this concept of like essentially a prison, right? Yes. This like carceral cage where you are put in um, for eternity. And I don't know, like I, these are just speculations, but I just, I'm, I'm just wondering more and more like, could, could a most merciful God actually work on such a human and base? Like, I don't know. I just think that binary is really interesting because it's like, here I am disrupting binaries, but then theologically like is there this binary but the, but and what's also interesting sorry to go on about this is like please the idea of like innocence and sin right and some people are really into to, really into sin like really into the idea <laughs> really, really into the idea of like condemning sins yeah um but then you're like I don't know I just I don't know I just think there's so much like interesting stuff here and I yeah but I feel like there's so little space to consider it because it's like you know, it's kind of like, oh, too transgressive. You can't really. But I just think they're important questions because that's part of like, to me, decolonizing religion or whatever is also trying to think about how much we've imposed our own understandings on stuff. Yes. Anyway, that that's, was a big tangent. Yeah, go that's on. Just on a, on a similar tangential note, it's what's actually interesting is that philosophies around solitary confinement and how that was identified early on was really trying to simulate like a monastic ex existence for prisoners, essentially. Oh, wow. So it was explicitly tied to religious and sort of Christian principles of just like having the space for prayer. And that's what mm. was intended in this bizarre way with Ooh. the imposition of with imposing such a harsh sentence like solitary confinement. It was like, oh, you'll just live like a monk. You'll live like a priest. You'll be able to pray all day mm. and really ruminate on your That's really interesting. So kind of the ref, you can like reform yourself. Right. You can but obviously that um, is not what we know the practice mm. of solitary confinement to right, actually right, right. be. But I think just related to what you were saying in general, I think our problem with with these kinds of 
this way to address harm and this way to address punishment is that we really don't trust our own ability to resolve harm without brutality. Ooh, tell me more about this. I think, I mean, and this is, again, this is views of many other prison abolitionists, not myself, Maryam Kaba, as well as others, um, which just talk about the fact that transformative justice is really comprised of creative and dynamic experiments happening across the world. They're not, and that's, I think there isn't a roadmap for this. And that's what so many people struggle with when we talk about um, what punishment and accountability can look Mm. like for harm is that this is, we're talking about huge, huge structural problems and there isn't a roadmap for how to address harm in a way that takes these sorts of things into account. And that's something that we're working towards, Mm. but it's, it's a process that is being led by people of color, mostly women of color. And it's just, I think that people are really have a hard time sitting with the imaginative aspect of that. Yeah, I think that, I think that's really true. I, I, it's just making me think um, the other day I was talking to some students about kind of designing a post prison world. What would that look like? A post police world, a post prison world. And um, one of the things, so I think a lot of people agreed with, and I think I'm sure a lot of people listening will agree to some extent with like, you know, much of this it feels believable and feasible. But one kind of wall that I kept hitting was people saying, well, actually, what about, you know, these really abhorrent crimes? And the ones that people generally bring up are um, murder and rape. And I think rape in particular in, is this this one that people are like, how could we possibly say that, you know, these people aren't, are are not inherently evil or, you know, and not, you know, that there are just some people, I think one of the students said, you know, there are some people who just can't function in society. And I thought that was such interesting language too, because in a way, what I, what I thought was happening. So actually one um, young man said that, um, you know, whenever I hear that somebody has sexually assaulted, a a man has sexually assaulted somebody, I go and punch him in the face. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was so fascinating because it was like, okay, one, where has the victim gone in all of this? Like, I was like, yeah. is, is this, do you like, is that good for her? Is right. she healed? Is she like done well? Like, so she's been completely removed. Um, but secondly, also like, what what is this doing in terms of like, either A, like, you know, creating some sort of transformation in the situation for the perpetrator, B, holding them to account, C, seeking justice for the victim. Because to me, it seemed a, a bit of like a, I must condemn you so much to prove that I have not also been socialized to be misogynistic, to believe that women's bodies should be dominated into this patriarchal culture. So by punching this boy, you say, no, 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 you um, are abhorrent. This crime is inherent to you and who you are. Um, And I thought that was really fascinating because it said to me that actually a lot of the ways that we deal with sexual violence and rape is kind of very like retrospective. We go, oh, we don't actually mind a society where rape keeps happening. It's just that every time it happens, we'll retrospectively punish Mm. that person Mm. um, and distance ourselves from their violence. And it's like, that's, it's mad that we actually think the best solution, well, it's kind of like, it's almost like this, it's this very performative, like hatred of rape. It's like, oh, that's the worst crime, but also the one that we least care about dealing or healing from. Yeah, I mean, patriarchy is the air we're all swimming in. So it's like, I think using it as a scapegoat. And that's actually something that I think people people talk a lot about the disparity, the, the disparity in rape, rape sentences in the U.S. So people, the cases people talk about a lot is the Stanford swimmer case, which I don't know if you're familiar with this guy, Brock Turner or whatever his I name is. I vaguely remember this. Um, he, it was either quote-unquote attempted rape or rape and he was given three months um sentence which was a very very short sentence and i think a lot of progressive progressive people in the u.s take that and they say 
he needs to be given a larger right. he needs to be given a longer sentence that's completely unjust that's all these things and the abolitionist stance on that is really just like no he doesn't need to be given a, a longer sentence everyone else needs to be given a lesser sentence mm. to that's the kind of we need to be accounting for that kind of context and mercy in all cases of right. rape not just and, and we and need to be having a real societal conversation about rape that's not the just, I think what you're saying yeah. is not just like to, oh to right. Know, right no because <laughs> I think and I, but I think here's an important shift is that we're making from punitive justice which is like punishing and yeah. caging people away and locking them up to actually what would it look like to hold people to account for their actions but I also think that a big part of this is having to kind of realize that we're all complicit in this society that has been created and that these individuals yes. perpetrating harm are in a sense just doing the logical conclusion of what the society has enabled them to do and, and, and at least the way I think about it is that you if you do want kind of justice you have to also believe that transformation is possible and I, I think I mean that both for like the victim and the perpetrator right so you have to believe that healing is possible for yes. the person who's been harmed and I know that a lot of people who do the work around this kind of violence say that actually many times that healing involves like communication and, and even like dialogue with the person who has harmed them and that's something that this punitive model doesn't allow for at all and so then you wonder is this actually about the victims at all and about it's kind not, of yeah right. <laughs> yeah um absolutely and i've spoken with a lot of victims who feel that way and i think anybody i mean i think it's something that makes intuitive sense to everyone has experienced some kind of harm interpersonally and i think the system, as you've said, the punitive system we have set up now doesn't enable any kind of healing or real growth between harmed parties mm. and victims. And I think there is all kinds of philosophies around restorative justice for how we can secure mm. things that look more like that. I think typically in the U.S. they've only been applied most most starkly to nonviolent crimes. The way they're currently being used is in schools right now. So could you give us some examples of this? Sure. So. Um, there's a there's a bunch of different examples, and I'm not as familiar with restorative justice models as as other folks, so I'll, my knowledge is somewhat limited on this. But in a lot of schools now, they have um, restorative justice mechanisms for dealing with conflict between students. So there's various practices for how to address this. But say an instance of bullying or harm occurred, it would be there would be a mediator, and there would be a, you'd bring both parties in, and that mediator would lead them and facilitate them through a conversation of what happened and what mm -hmm. re remedy would need to be. In place for the person who was harmed to mm -hmm. feel better and also any context that Right. That the that the person who perpetrated the harm feels is is necessary right. and worth sharing. And actually, so I was reading about a case I think in Chicago in a community that is like um, predominantly black. And I think so a shopkeeper like some stuff had been stolen from his shop, and he didn't want to call the police because he didn't want the police to come into the community because likelihood is that actually someone would be shot rather than this be dealt with at all. Um, and so instead, what he did is he looked on Facebook and he found the items that had been stolen being sold by like a young boy at the local school. So he went to the school and he asked like, yeah, kind of what you're saying. Could I have a mediator to meet with? this boy and he met with the boy and I guess the conversation must have gone something along the lines of you know why did you need to do this and and again like you say put him straight into a context and said is it that you need the money um you know what because you kind of put yourself at quite a high risk here because I could have called the police and you know that would probably not have ended well for you and so the the kind of restorative bit here was that the outcome was hey why don't you volunteer in my shop for a few weeks to kind of you know pay me back the the kind of loss of exactly. my goods but then I think after a few weeks then he gave him a job there and he was now unemployed. I mean, he was now employed. And after a few more weeks, I think the you know that was like had all these other transformative impacts on that boy. And you know, in terms of confidence, in terms of like value of his own life, in terms of resources and money. And 
that was wild because it was like when you say it it sounds like a really sensible straightforward idea and you're kind of I, I don't know it, it kind of goes back to what you were saying before that we have come to believe that we are not capable of resolving issues without deferring to this third party who is likely to brutalize us and I, I was just thinking, you know, when you were a kid and like, let's take like non-violent examples, right? But say like your sibling does something annoying or it takes something of yours or hurts you in like, you know, not too bad a way. You actually, the first thing you do is go to your parent, maybe, ideally, mm. um, in a lot of cases. And the, they often will just try and find a way to like mediate the situation, right? Rather than being like, you now must sit in a cage and never come back into our house and you'll never be a part of this family again. I mean, ideally, like I know there are obviously mm-hmm. are cases where um, things don't go so well, but I think it's like the, the common sense notion actually isn't just to not resolve these problems and just to defer to these outside parties. And I don't know, I just find it really interesting how we kind of ended up at this position where something that actually isn't commonsensical seems so commonsensical and then you have things where you know like people calling the police on people for doing the most random absurd things i don't know i yeah would you would you ever would you ever call the police would i ever call the police yeah like if you um, saw someone i've know. called the police in instances of car accidents okay uh i think that's it okay <laughs> is that like a deliberate thing yes it is um i think there's there's uh, many lists that circulate the internet of things you can do instead of calling the police um, when you really are feeling like you need to call the police. Um, but no, I think um, I I think there is it's hard for me to imagine a scenario where I would feel comfortable calling the police. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Okay, so going back to what you what we've just been discussing, but particularly around like what what would it actually look like to kind of move beyond just like pain and punishment and pain and punishment and harm and more harm um i was thinking of like um, a documentary i watched maybe last year about the stephen lawrence murder case in the uk so this is a really really famous case um a black boy stephen lawrence was murdered in 1993 and uh it was quite common knowledge like who had done it it was kind of an unspoken um knowledge that it was this gang of like five white boys who did a lot of racially motivated violence and they had killed him um was kind of what was said by people and even like people left anonymous notes and stuff saying this um but they weren't uh, they were arrested i think and then they were kind of just they said there's no um you know proper evidence um all the evidence is like unreliable and then they were left and it was kind of all very like not dealt with very well and so it led to this public inquiry which then found that the police are institutionally racist which was like a really big milestone in british history and the definition of institutionally racist there was that you know they had been negligent they had kind of disadvantaged the this case being worked out in the best way um at every level um but what i find really interesting is then that in 2005 a law changed so they could actually reopen the case and they could prosecute again and they re-examined evidence and they found that actually you know due to forensics that they could arrest these two men gary dobson and david norris um and on retrial they were found guilty but what was fascinating in the documentary is that the mom of stephen lawrence she says um you know, all she wants is justice. And the way that she defines justice is kind of imprisonment of all all, all of the, the men who murdered her son. And I just sat back when I heard that because I thought, I wonder if that would bring her peace. Like, I really wonder, because wouldn't justice actually look like her son never being murdered? Wouldn't justice actually look like a community and a society in which there is no racially motivated violence where actually she could feel safe for her black boy son to be in the world and and I guess if you work backwards like that and think about justice it leaves you with actually this idea of just caging people up that's not going to bring healing that's not going to bring accountability um and I wonder 
does that mean then that to have a, have a system where we do deal with justice correctly and we think about harm rather than crime, we have to go back to the roots of everything and we have to rethink education. We have to rethink, you know, the norms of society. Um, I mean, is that what this entails, this journey of abolition? Is it actually, you can't just close down prisons. You actually have to kind of do everything else. Yes. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that is true. Um, and I think, I mean, because the problem is when you're, I mean, and this is again, another another concept from from other prison abolitionists, which is, this quote that I really like, which they, um, Mariam Kaba says, when you say, when you ask, what would we do without prisons? What you were really saying is what would we do without civil death, exploitation and state sanctioned violence? Oh my God. Um, really good. and yeah, really, really good. <laughs> it is really good. Yeah. yeah. And I think the point, I mean, and it, it's, I mean, it comes up in the U S all the time when you're talking about black victims of police brutality, who've been shot and killed by the police, the act that the only thing we can really ask for, for recourse is that the police, the white, the often white police officers are charged with murder or serve time in prison mm. or are brought to justice, quote unquote, in some capacity. Right. Mm. That's the only recourse that's available. Mm. And that's because the way this justice system is set up now is that's how, that's what happens to bad people, right. supposedly in right. our culture. And it's, if you, until you reframe that conversation, that is the only way to get mm. quote unquote justice because there's because because all they all that all that people want is what other people get you know mm. in that way and so if you're not reframing the whole conversation of course I would never fault anyone whose family member has been murdered or who's been brutalized by the police to seek some kind of justice right. in the criminal justice system of course. because that's the only recourse that's and that's available. the thing because when I when I heard her saying this like Simon Lawrence's mom I thought well of course like yeah because what else can you look for like you, your son isn't going to come back and actually I don't know how you're going to heal from this trauma um, and so I guess the only thing left for you in the society we have built is yeah imprison those men because it's, as you say that's what everybody else got so I wonder I mean I've been reading a little bit around kind of prison abolition recently and I guess the kind of, you know, very brief synopsis that I've understood is that the first things that we can do, though, on a very basic level are um, decriminalizing those things that are like nonviolent. So when people talk about decriminalizing drugs, decriminalizing, um, you know, I don't know what, what I actually can't think of any other good examples, um, but things that like people don't need to be in prison for or arrested for. Um, I've kind of seen that and then I've seen um, decarceration. So like get people out of prison who are there solely for kind of I think particularly non-violent crimes which yep. is a surprising amount of yes people. it is right um and one thing that's connected to this is that there so I guess one thing that's actually important to say is that prisons haven't always been around actually right and uh, I think that's interesting because that's a big argument that a lot of people will fall back on is like but this is the way it's always been and mm -hmm. actually it's not. Um, and it's actually quite recent history um, and particularly the way they are now. So actually at the moment, and I didn't know this until very recently, the UK has the biggest prison population in the in the whole of Europe. Uh, I think it's like 100,000 wow. um, people and we're like an island. I didn't know that um, either. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, but also what's been happening is the privatization of prisons. So more and more, and I know this is a big thing in the US, um, more and more you have like companies like G4S um, that own prisons. And so my question is, um, you know, does this mean then that prison is less about justice and more about profit making? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think so. and that's I mean, it's it's so many things, right? It is like I think, um, you know, it's how the profit is justified and validated. Um, and I think you, you can't, you know, people wouldn't want to make a 
people, I think people who own prisons sleep at night because they think that what they're doing is, is justice and making communities safer, which we know mm. is not true. Um, yeah, actually, if you I, look on the G4S website, um, it's wild because it's about like uh, kind of getting people to work in prisons and it's like, make our community safer and healthier. And then I remember there was a report into this prison in Birmingham that was run by G4S and they were like, it had the worst conditions that they had ever seen in like any prison. And you're just like, that's so intriguing. It's like, do they really believe that they're making things safer? I don't. Yeah, I think a lot of people do. And I think and that's because punishment, even before prisons, really, punishment has always been linked to like the moral sentiments of the community. Um, And it's a way and initially, I mean, punishment was much more public and performative than it is now. Now our punishment happens behind closed doors Mm. in prisons and in other facilities where no one from no one who's outside can access them. But prior to that, punishment was an extremely public, Mm. extremely performative so you mean like hangings and stuff? Yes. And, and it was really designed to to make an example out mm. of certain offenses so that people would learn in a certain way. And now our punishment is really just this very private, very intimate in a lot of ways affair. So and I have a question um, about, so some people would say rather than abolish prisons and kind of get rid of the police, um, and actually, well, actually, just to give an anecdote about an anecdote about like because people think abolishing the police is a wild idea. How could you do that? And you know, I was reading examples around just like communities looking after themselves and the idea that actually, I think I read something about there was a corner of a street somewhere where there was like a lot of violence occurred, and so a lot of the local mums decided that every night they would do like a barbecue there, and the violence just like fell to like astronomically low levels because actually you didn't need to defer to the police to actually, you know, cage these people. You could just kind of deal with them in other ways. But anyway, my point was, uh, some people will say, could we not just reform prisons? Couldn't we make them really nice and really like good places to be? Um, <laughs> what would you say to that? Um, I would say that that it's hard for me to imagine a prison system that doesn't involve um, bondage and annihilation of people's bodies because essentially that's, I mean, prisons are about removing people from society that certain Mm. people need to be incapacitated and completely removed from Mm -hmm. society at large. And I think ultimately the goal should be moving into a society where we can accommodate and integrate. Right everybody right. to a certain to the greatest extent possible and of course i understand everybody loves exactly as you said earlier people love to have these extreme scenarios mm-hmm. where it's just like the most evil like <laughs> people really have this impression that people on death row are serial rapists serial murderers mm-hmm. these monstrous evil individuals and i can tell you having met with many many people on death row that's i've never met any any single person who fits that description who really? sits on death row and yeah. it's And I think that's a really hard thing for people Mm. to wrap their heads around because of so much of the allure of, I think people are very interested in violence Mm. um, from a really often like pretty gross, pretty bizarre perspective because of, because it's almost comforting this idea that that violence is, um, is an inhuman thing when really violence is a deeply, deeply human thing and the spectrum of violence, I think, and people get really uncomfortable when I say stuff like this, but I think people, you know, the idea of even, even the most egregious violent crime we can imagine murder people people think that that's something that's so far from mm. the average person so actually that's kind yeah. of like the guilt of that sticks with you you can't can you become unguilty then ever can you because say like you know if your sentence gets shortened and you get released from prison that 
that stigma and that mark is always on you actually and i think particularly in the case of something like murder right how do people i think people don't know how to in their heads adjust to that because absolutely we have put it in this category of well you are evil but then on the other hand right you have the state as we've said before constantly murdering people and we have homelessness in the uk as right we have austerity seeing disabled people die all the time we had grenfell we had a whole building burned down because you know no one could be bothered to to pay for the cladding and that kind of thing is not seen as murder right and it's it's just seen as you know uh, death that just was part of a system that we're we're in but that's interesting because coming back to what i guess almost full circle you know we we have individuals who you know yeah can can never you know he, he can never be a lawyer because he's a murderer um and in fact isn't that language interesting like you are a murderer that now defines who you are not just the thing you did whereas with the state with the government and etc we these are just things that happen within its remit rather than we don't say the state is murderous the state is violent um and i don't know whether the whether the solution is that we should be, but I think sometimes it's quite powerful to kind of say that kind of thing because you denaturalize this idea that the state is just innocent, right? Because actually in a way, that's what the state says it is, that it will always be innocent um, because it kind of is natural and right and has a right to do whatever it wants to do. Um, And again, that kind of implies this ahistoricalness to it, that it's like, this is just the way it's always been. Um, You know, the war on terror and all of these kind of wars and foreign policy, all of that is just the way it is. Um, And whenever an individual does the exact same thing, and again, going back to the terrorism example, you have examples of... um, I think it was the murders of the murderers of Lee Rigby. They said when they kind of were asked why they had killed him, so he was a soldier who was um, kind of killed in the UK, um, by these Muslim men, they said that um, we killed him because civilians in, in other countries are being killed by the military in this country. And what's fascinating is that they were using the same language of the war on terror, the same language of um, state violence. But when it was used by them, it was that made them evil, bad, criminal. Mm-hmm. Um, but it didn't make the state equally so. Yes. And so I guess I'm trying to figure out, Do is what I want both people to be seen as, both kind of entities, I suppose, to be to be seen as the same or or is it just accountability and i think it is just accountability the unfairness comes from the fact that you want to say yeah hold these people account for what they did sure but why are we not also saying well if we care so much about violence and that's the thing the thing that's fascinating here is that as you've said people are obsessed with violence but we don't actually care it's like we care this, the rape thing is a great example right we care but we don't actually care because we don't care about the victims and this seems to reoccur again and again in this whole conversation i mean if you think we should move away from innocence and guilt um, as kind of ways of thinking about all of this, are there any more helpful ways that you think we can think about this? Wow, you just said a lot there. I know, I'm sorry. Um, I that's okay. <laughs> so I, that, I, it was all really great and interesting and I was tracking you the whole way. <laughs> one thing I did want to say um, before getting to your last point is um, that I think one of the things I argue in my research is that the cultural obsession with innocence is absolutely tied to the nation seeing themselves as innocent. Like those things are super, super related in my mind. Mm. So our obsession with an individual's innocence Mm. is because the U S especially wants to see itself as historically exonerated of its own Mm. crimes. And that's, you know, for, I mean, clearly the U S has never really dealt with its history of slavery with its history of genocide, stealing land from native Americans. I mean, but that's the same here because the history of the U S is the history of Britain as well. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's the same for any empire across time, you know, but I think, um, and so the motivation to see ourselves as innocent and to Mm. hold up innocence as a sacred category is absolutely Mm. tied to 
to state-based crimes and state-based violence. Yeah, that's interesting because there's been this whole debate recently in the UK about Churchill, Winston Churchill, because people love him. Um, but obviously recently people have been talking about how he was complicit in all this racism, genocide and uh, famine in Bengal. But like people are like unwilling to say that he could possibly be other than this hero. And this is absolutely the idea of not being able to see him as guilty, quote unquote, and wanting to preserve his sacredness. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Okay, so if we, if you think that we should move away from thinking in terms of innocence and guilt, because I feel like it's kind of clear that that's not that helpful. It's kind of hiding a lot of nuances of the way that harm works. Is there a way that you think we should be thinking about these things? Yeah, um, I think my goal, um, and I think the goal of abolition in general is really just to sort of try to eliminate that distinction and the 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 huge space that lies in many people's mind between who gets to be the innocent and who gets to be the guilty. And I think the practice of doing that is absolutely related to contextualizing as we've talked about a lot and to trying to provide context whenever possible. But I think it's also about um I mean, it's the same argument that people make about racism a lot where it's not like racism operates exclusively on the level of the individual. The, the the issues of guilt and innocence and race and all these things operate at such structural levels mm -hmm. that I think making that relationship between interpersonal violence, personal violence and state violence and just making sure that that relationship as is being is being highlighted whenever possible, I think, is a good way to acknowledge that that violence is always placed in a larger state based context. Thank you for listening to this episode of Breaking Binaries. I hope you, like me, can take something from my guest this week. Look out for episodes fortnightly and if you enjoyed, please share with a friend or loved ones or even a nemesis. I want to thank Hussein Kasvani for making this possible and reaching out to me in the first place, as well as the whole gang of producers, Milo and Nate. The music you've been hearing was made by an old high school connection that came through, so shout out to Violence Jack and give him a follow at, at getviolencejack online. Thanks to all my guests for chatting with me every week and helping us think a little more critically and I hope humbly about our world. I do believe that the way we transform the world is transforming the way people think about it. So thank you for listening. I've been your host, Sahima Manzal Khan. Bye.